This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane. A big thank you to the team from Radiotherapy for bringing us through the 11 o'clock. We've got you now for science uh, for one hour until 12. In the studio with me is Dr. Ewan. Good morning, buddy. Good morning. You're getting more bearded every day. Yeah, I'm just growing it out, you know. <laughs> Why not? Why not? <laughs> Dr. Jane, good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. He's just trying to blend in more with our puppy. We have oh, a puppy, okay. and, and yeah, he just, true, wants, to, he just got, wants to make sure he looks more like a puppy. She's got less grey than me, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because you, you're not grey at all on top. Nah, just, just on the, the sides. Beard. Yeah, that's yeah, where all the stress is, apparently. Really? Yeah, on the side of the face. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting. There's a okay. study in that. There's a study in that, I'm sure. Speaking of... <laughs> Studies. <laughs> Chris KP, good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm, I'm okay. You, you're a bit devious today. I can I can tell it's going to be a difficult hour. I hadn't. I did not notice all morning until I got here, and you guys have mentioned it. I, f- I feel like if I'm not, um, you know, wildly mischievous, I'll have let you down. You mm. will. Don't don't let us down, please. Yeah. We've got high do. hopes. High <laughs> hopes for the next hour. We'll do the, we'll do the best we can. We've got a couple of guests uh, a bit later in the show, folks. But we're going to start off with some news. Doctor Ewan, do you want to kick it off? Yeah. Uh, does anyone here like chess? Yeah, yeah, I like chess. I really yeah, I mean, enjoy like playing chess. Br- I mean, like. I'm do, you, do, you, do you consider <laughs> yourself a good way. chess player? Probably not if you're that's sort the of, if you're umming and ahhing about it. Well, I'd, I'd put money on myself unless yeah. the person looked like they'd played before. Do you reckon you'd, pl- <laughs> do you reckon you'd play chess against a crow? A crow? Yeah. Yeah, I'd have a crack. Yeah, against a New Caledonian crow? Is this getting worse? What? No, so this is a really interesting study that's just come out, I guess, showing how intelligent New, Del- New Caledonian crows are. So we know that ravens and crows are highly intelligent birds, um, good at solving problems. They use tools in some cases. Um, of course, there's a classic example of the, uh, crows, I think it is in Japan, that wait for the traffic lights, drop, drop the seeds on the ground, the cars run them mm-hmm. over, then they can get the nut out that they can't open themselves, but they stop getting run over because it's a red light, right? So they're, they're pretty, pretty smart. Pretty smart, pretty smart mm-hmm. birds. So, Basically, in terms of solving problems, you've sort of got a couple of options. One is that you basically just react to a situation and you sort of fumble your way through it. Or you can be a bit more premeditated and think about, okay, what are the steps I need to do to, you know, affect A, mm. B or C? And mm. so that's kind of how a chess game works, right? If you can think a few steps ahead, mm. you've got a better chance of beating your opponent because you can kind yep. of lay out the groundwork for how you're going to tackle this problem. And this really interesting study just come out in current biology showing that these new Caledonian crows can do exactly that. So they can think three steps ahead. Hmm. So they had to do this really nifty experiment where they basically provided a food reward that involved also a stone and small or large sticks. And the crows had to work their way through this step by step. And each step was basically obscured, so they couldn't see multiple steps ahead. And these crows were basically able to envisage how they had to use these little sticks or long sticks. In this case, the little sticks are the ones they needed to get the stone, which then got the food reward out. Mm-hmm. And they showed through a series of trials that these birds could actually think their way through that, so multiple steps ahead. And not only that, some of these birds uh, took to it incredibly quickly. So one bird, Saturn, one of these ravens, um, never got it wrong. So every time it was confronted with this challenge, it never got it wrong. And they randomised, you know, the way that things were pre- presented and so forth to, to really kind of mess with them, and they just thought their way through it. So I think a little bit like kind of octopus and squid and so forth, once these things can bear arms, if ravens... I've discussed with Chris, I think we're really concerned that once ravens and things like yeah, squid and so forth join, join together, yeah, humans are gone. Yeah, yeah. That's but it. i, I got to say, to answer your earlier question, right now I think that um, if I were... Now that this research has come out, I'd be totally happy to 
play uh, a New Caledonian Raven at chess because if I lost, it wouldn't be that big a deal. Yeah, you wouldn't Previously, feel it's just a bird. Yeah. Right. Now, right. Oh, now we can move this smart. So yeah. it's, hey, yeah. it's okay, man. So why, why <laughs> is it, do you think, these particular birds, though, have these capabilities? Because in an evolutionary sense, like what, what has pushed them to be able to do this compared to other birds that don't? Yeah, look, that's a fantastic question. I don't have a good answer for that. I mean, obviously, humans for a long time have been pretty arrogant. I mm. think that we thought that we're these sort of wonderful animals and only we are these, you know, incredibly intelligent beings that can use tools and can mm. think ahead. Mm. And obviously, for a long time now, it's been shown that's just bollocks. Um, but yeah, why, why ravens over that, other, other groups of birds? I, I wonder if ravens, so, I wonder, wonder if they all the corvids generally. I wonder if they have enough self-awareness to have that level of arrogance. <laughs> against other birds. Yeah. I mean, like, everyone against yeah. us too. Like they come up to a seagull and they're both going for a chip and they always get it. <laughs> yeah. Well, they always get the chip and, you know, and, and anything else that might be in the pockets of the seagull. Oh. But I just, do they have that same level I'll, of, you I'll know, go away and ask my birdie friends and, yeah. and see if I can get a good answer for us. But you have to yeah. think the more, the more clever experiments we do, the more we're going to find out that these species can do incredible Mm. things. Yeah, there were bees were in the news again this week with their, you know, mathematical Mm. abilities that we absolutely didn't think they had. I Mm. think to some extent that it's way more common out there than we know, but it takes us to do the experiments and And come up with the ways of testing it. Not just thinking of complex organisms either. I mean, slime moulds have been shown to be able to solve, you know, Mm. quite difficult challenges that some humans might struggle with. (laughs) Yeah. Don't you reckon that we're looking at the wrong questions though? Because all we're doing is saying is is realizing it as, yeah. as dr jen said that oh they they can do some things that we didn't think they could do but yeah. maybe we should be looking at stuff that we can't do either maybe exactly. they're traveling in time maybe they're you know <laughs> maybe they're in <laughs> more, places that, yeah, more places at the same time maybe yeah, we should just yeah. be pushing the envelope out and yeah. seeing if they're doing the stuff that we haven't even imagined we could do yeah, yeah. i mean i always found that during my phd which was very very closely focused on a particular species i spent you know years following them around i always was conscious that the way i was understanding their behavior was through a human lens mm, you know yeah. i had no other way of understanding what they were doing and i would have just loved to have been inside their heads for just 10 minutes to see actually you know what what world they saw yeah what the, what the stimulus was what yeah. They, yeah, why you know that's why with the birds i think there's there, there must be something in their environment that we're probably not seeing that mm. they're doing that's mm. optimized with this skill set yeah i mean the great thing really about cool. a lot of the ravens and corvids do is that they pass that knowledge on to others mm. within the same group too mm. so there's an ability to share that information yeah, as well that. quite yeah. rapidly so mm. yeah cool yeah. stuff So there was a a paper in the Times at the end of January with a great title. The title was Germs in Your Gut Are Talking to Your Brain and Scientists Want to Know What They're Saying. It was a great piece written by Carl Zimmer who's an excellent science writer and he was talking about a whole heap of really exciting research findings which are accumulating at the moment. He was talking about the fact um, essentially links between the the bacteria in in our guts which is known as the microbiome so this whole world of bacteria in our gut and he was talking about the fact that we now know that the microbiome plays a role in Parkinson's and Alzheimer's and schizophrenia and autism and a whole lot of other conditions. But then this week a really exciting paper came out in uh, Nature Microbiology. So it's a um, study in the Netherlands called the Flemish Gut Flora Project and they looked at more than a 1,000 people and and all sorts of interesting discoveries about what's going on in people's guts. But the, the main story that came out of this study was that they basically 
basically they're analysing the ability of the of the bacteria in our gut to talk to our nerve cells essentially and what they found was that in people who've been diagnosed with clinical depression there are two particular types of bacteria so um, genera of bacteria so kind of groups of bacteria that are significantly depleted so all of these people out there with clinical depression are basically missing these two kinds of bacteria and it wasn't just one study they then um, corroborated it with another study of more than a thousand people from another big Dane, um, sorry, another big Dutch study. So the first time we have a very solid evidence of a link between the bacteria in our guts and mental health. Does that mean we're going towards poo pills? Well, that'll be the next part of the study, mm. is to give people poo pills with these particular bacteria and see what happens. But for me, one of the most interesting things about this whole study was the fascinating science communication challenge that it raised mm. because, you know, it's so easy to decide then, okay, so anyone who has clinical depression mm. then, we just need to give them probiotics with these two particular groups yep. of bacteria and it'll fix them. <laughs> yeah. And, of course, it's not yeah, that yeah. simple. Yeah. It's so easy to jump to simple, simple conclusions, but mm. we're only just, you know, beginning to get any insight into this link between our gut and our brain and mm. I'm sure it's not that simple but of course trying to get the balance right between saying this is a very important discovery and it's really exciting and it opens up so many avenues for new research but just don't jump to the simple conclusion and assume this is yeah. how we're going to fix yeah. depression. I remember hearing from a researcher at the Children's a few years back where I was emceeing an event and they were talking about the use of probiotics as a in, in one of these mechanisms and the talk mm. was around um, you know children on the autism spectrum yep. and one of the questions to her was, you know, can I start giving my child yep. you know, probiotics? And she said, well, if you looked at the amount required that mm. they used in their animal models, it would be the equivalent of a child drinking like a 44-gallon drum of probiotics <laughs> twice a day. And she's like, wow. so no. <laughs> but, but, you know, the, the concentration... Like a big the, milkshake. Yeah, you know, the concentration <laughs> the amount relative to size yeah, was yeah. so extraordinary mm. that yeah. there was some link happening, there's some, some interest happening, but in terms of making a therapeutic that mm. could actually be utilised by people, it was like so far off it wasn't mm. funny so in interesting data but if but, you just think yeah. about it you know it wasn't that long ago that if you'd suggested that what was going on in your gut had a direct effect mm. of what was going on mm. in your brain people mm. would have laughed at you and said no no way so uh, i feel like in the last couple of years we've oh, yeah, learned a yeah. lot i think what i find fascinating is what's led to the loss of these things because mm. you know my sort of um naive understanding is that mental health issues have increased in the last couple of decades and i don't know how much of that is just because we're better at picking it up and reporting it versus Public, an actual change yeah. it's probably a bit of both but yeah what environmental factors are actually mm. driving mm. the loss of these bacteria in some people versus others i mean we need to know that too right yeah. because absolutely yeah. yeah and our diets have changed drastically well, we know over diets, the last definitely. decades yeah yeah, yeah. Mm. we're going to solve it in the hour no no give us two hours and we'd be fine we'd be good yeah yeah <laughs> Now for something serious, Chris KP. <laughs> Thank you. Finally, um, uh, how, how are you guys with um, with needles? I'm fine. fine. Yeah, really. Yeah, yeah I them. just yeah, stare yeah. down the nurse. Yeah. No dramas at all. Tickety really? Yeah. Wow, you, what, okay. do you, what do you do? You stare well, down the nurse. I just look nurse. them in the eye because you know how some people they can't even look at the needle. Oh, I, I like to like, watch. Bring it on. Yeah, yeah no, I like to watch on. the needle. In it yeah. goes. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wow, so I, I am the wimp of this panel. Then. Okay, uh, <laughs> I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not properly phobic, but I'm not a massive fan. If I can avoid someone stabbing me, I will. It seems like evolutionary wise play to me. But anyway, anyway, never mind. Um, the, the reason I raise this is because some researchers from MIT have developed a very nifty system to, uh, in some cases, avoid the need for an injection. Um, they've produced. Okay, imagine it's a capsule. Inside the capsule is the actual mother load technical thing they produce. So the capsule just breaks down in your stomach, but inside it. 
is a very cleverly designed um the, it's about the size of like a blueberry it's it's you know mm. small blueberries my my read of it actually i've seen some big blueberries in my day <laughs> but anyway it's designed to fall downwards so the tip of this thing which is a delivery mechanism lands down in your stomach um at the the needle that is holding the tip which has got the mother load in it basically has a, comp- a compressed spring behind it so it's all ready to go boing, boing. but it doesn't go boing because it's held there by a sugar-based you know lump which your stomach then breaks down as soon as that's broken down then it goes boing injects the needle into the the membrane of the stomach the needle is itself made of nearly completely 100 percent dried insulin so that then dissolves into your stomach and the rest of the mechanism can just flush straight through your system. You can fish around and try and find it if you want. Um, I personally wouldn't um, <laughs> because I'm not into that either. Uh, I know you're thinking, what am I even into? But yeah, no, it's not that. Uh, anyway, yeah, so this is, is essentially an insulin pill, which is difficult to do because otherwise it all breaks down inside your stomach and it's useless to you, which is why you have to inject. But yeah, mm. so it's, it's a combination of um, the right kind of chemistry, that is dried stuff, but more impressively for mine, the right kind of physics of this thing actually will yeah. float down and land point down so it's going to more or less guarantee it's into the entering into your blood system. Very so, impressive. So do you pass the rest out, though? Yeah, I believe so. Okay, so you yeah. have to constantly keep eating these things and they just... Oh, like, no, no, you, so you'd, the only the only thing you'd pass... Oh, you'd have to have the pills. Yeah, yeah that's what that'd I'm be saying. That would be the, yeah. the equivalent of saying every yeah. time you have a new insulin shot, you throw the syringe. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah of you course. Do. Yeah. In fact, now I think about I'm it. I'm just giving, you... like, what would be your preference to, like, have those injections, which you don't feel very much, keep versus pills. keep eating swallowing pills all the time. I, so. hadn't, I hadn't thought, though. That just makes me wonder if if there's an environmental advantage. There's actually less stuff mm, less to dispose mm. of. Maybe. I don't really know that. It's a lot of blueberries to consume, but, you know. Yeah, there are worse things you consume. It's true. So it's, inter- it's interesting how, you know, over the years I remember, you know, hating things like tetanus injectors. Mm. Oh, they're worse than most. But, yeah. but, but not anymore because, really? it, well, because the part that hurts is not the needle, it's the viscosity of the fluid. Yep. And forcing a high viscous fluid through your body hurts like crap. Has that got better, has it? Well, I had one a couple of years ago and I was sort of, I had this big cut on my head. And, you know, I went in there and they were talking about stitching and stuff. And the part I was only really scared of was they were going to say, when was your last tetanus injection? Yeah, and I was yeah. going to say, yeah, oh, I had a recent one, you know, <laughs> 32 years ago. <laughs> and, and, you know, I knew, I knew where this was going. And I, you know, I'd sort of come in with this thing. And, you know, I, I, you know, my vision of that was someone with a tetanus injection the size of a cricket. Yeah, head, yeah. And <laughs> this was going to hurt. Mm. But it didn't hurt virtually at all because the viscosity mm. of the fluids they use now has been changed quite radically and it's a different formulation and so it doesn't you just you feel the pain of the needle but it's like getting a flu shot you know it was like in fact I was quite stunned like how oh my, it get back and get a tetanus shot like, give me more give me yeah, more it's worth getting one yeah, yeah alright yeah. sounds great yeah I mean you know I <laughs> after mean, the show guys after the day yeah. we'll all go get a tetanus so, shot triple <sighs> Welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3RRR. On the phone now, hopefully, we have Dr. Prasad Paradka from CSRO. Prasad, can you hear us? Yes, I can. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks so much for, uh, for, for talking to us this morning because we, we saw the work you've been doing between yourself at CSRO and the University of California in San Diego um, with regards to the engineered mosquitoes. Can you give us an idea first? Um, you know, Zika virus is the problem here. Can you talk us through a bit about what Zika virus is and who it's affecting? 
Yeah, so Zika virus is one of the mosquito-borne viruses. Um, I think you or and your listeners may remember it. Uh, in it caused a big outbreak in the Americas in 2015-16, mm-hmm. especially in Brazil, and it led to uh, WHO declaring it as a public health emergency. And there was problems with the Rio Olympics as well. So there was some players which refused to go. Mm. And uh, so the infection actually usually leads to mild disease, except in pregnant women it leads to, or it can lead to miscarriage or serious birth defects. So that's the main issue here. Mm. And in terms of its um, its transmission, does it uh, is it people to people, or is it just through insect bites? How, do, how does it get transmitted? So it's mostly uh, by insect bites. The so mosquitoes are the main culprits. It's also been shown to be transmitted sexually, but it doesn't at least uh, in research that's been done, it doesn't play a huge role in epidemiology. So it's made mostly mosquito bites. Mm. In terms of Australia, we, my understanding is we have the mosquitoes involved in this in northern Queensland, but we don't have the virus as yet? Yeah, that's right. So the mosquitoes are the same ones which can transmit dengue as well. So these are Aedes aegypti mosquito, mm-hmm. and they're present in uh, northern Queensland. Uh, but Zika virus is not present. It we had a few cases, but those were imported cases, so travellers coming back from uh, those affected countries. Right. So so what's been the plan with your work with regards to the mosquitoes? How do you prevent them from carrying the virus? Yeah, so, um, well, the main problem here is that there are no vaccines available or any specific therapies available against the virus. So the only thing we can do is prevent the transmission by mosquitoes. And traditionally, we have been using, you know, insecticides to kill mosquito population mm-hmm. um, or use mosquito repellents to prevent the mosquito bites. But in spite of this, you know, Zika is still circulating. It's not in the news right now, but it's still circulating in many parts of the world and causing infections. So here what we did was took a try to look at an alternative approach is how we can um, use genetic technology to generate a mosquito which can be resistant to Zika. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, we, yeah. know, sorry, go on. No, no, go, go ahead, go ahead, please. Uh, so uh, the way we did it is that introduced the anti-Zika gene in a mosquito genome. And this, uh, what we showed, and this was done in the University of California, and we here uh, tested these mosquitoes in a high containment lab in CSIRO. And we found that these mosquitoes were very effective in blocking the transmission in mosquitoes. So what does that mean in terms of uh, the introduction of the gene, though? Does, I mean, often when we, we talk about changing genes or introducing yeah. new genes or knocking genes out, it's rare that a gene does one thing. That's right. So this is a completely synthetic gene. So this is basically based on the uh, RNA, uh, small RNAs. So we introduced an, a new, completely novel synthetic gene into the genome. So this gene has no other function other than... Um, and it produces these small RNAs which can target viral genome, so mm. Zika virus genome. So this gene has no other function other than to just break down virus genome. And, and is this gene passed on from mosquito generation to mosquito generation, or is it, or do you have to fabricate these as you go? So right now it is passed on by uh, Mendelian inheritance, which means that only you know once you. Um, once the mosquitoes mate, only 50% of the offsprings will have these genes in the in those mosquitoes. Hmm. In terms of the sort of broader environment, do we have hmm. any idea of how, you know, preventing mosquitoes from carrying the Zika virus will affect other populations, like non-human populations? 
we don't. So obviously a lot of investigation uh, needs to be done before we can actually even look at taking this beyond the lab. Mm. Um, and there are obviously, as you may be aware, there are a lot of technologies available for this, like gene drive, which is which was in the news a while back. Uh, it can be used to penetrate the wild population with these mosquitoes. But um, and, and mosquitoes obviously play a large and complex ecological role in the wild. So we yeah. probably know, um, you know, uh, very little about what other roles mosquitoes play. So we know that they, they are a big pollinator, so they pollinate number of plants. We know they are food source for birds or bats, uh, but we don't, we, we, we basically know that. We don't know much more than that. Mm. And, and Zika itself, you know, came into the popular press just in the last few years. But right. what, what other species does Zika affect? Does it have a population control feature for some species that are problematic otherwise? I mean, how much do we know about the Zika virus? Oh, the, so the Zika virus was initially identified in, um, I think, 1947. And it has caused few outbreaks, but it really came into the media um, because of this outbreak in 2015. Um the other, you know, it, it can infect non-human primates, like other than uh, also monkeys. So, but we don't know what role Zika virus plays in sort of the uh, larger ecology. Mm. So it seems like that would be, you know, one of the next steps is to really determine how the release of, you know, if, if there's a planned release at some stage of these mosquitoes into the environment and, you know, how that would affect other, you know, non-human species and, and what, what yeah. that ecological... So, you know, I mean, I think we've had many cases over the years where we've done things of this type where they haven't been thought through properly. And, yeah, and exactly. this is one, obviously, it's a big problem. It's a disease that is a big problem like many other mosquito-borne diseases, but that, that careful insight into the impact of what we're trying. How, how do you think we will go about testing that? So I think, the, obviously, the major step will be how we can deploy these mosquitoes in the wild, wild environment. Um, and um, the main issue is ethical issue as well on both sides of release of such mosquitoes. And the key step will be um, taking that social license to use this technology. So there needs to be well-informed public discussions, community engagement, such as this radio show, of course. Um, and we need to do this sort of key experiments in the lab to identify the risk. And this will inform the, this public discussion. So mm. there are a number of steps that need to be taken before we can even think about taking it outside the lab. Professor, it's Chris Kopey here. I'm just interested um, that you said this is using this technique is using a, uh, a completely synthetic gene. So you've essentially invented something to add to the mosquito genome. Is that right. is that something that is uh, becoming more common? Is that I mean, I'm just thinking of all the diseases that well that are out there mm. generally, but even even mosquito-borne ones. Is that a technique that is viable across the board? Um, so introducing uh, sort of a certain trait into an animal has been thought about for you know number of years more recently you know because of the you know, new technology genetic technology which has become available it has become easier to do it now this has been mosquitoes have been sort of the first organisms which people have targeted because of huge public health impact now uh, there are researchers who have tried to modify mosquito genome to make them less, you know, more resistant to transmitting malaria. Uh, we are trying to 
Um, we have in this paper we have tried to do make them resistant to Zika. Mm. We are plans to target dengue, which is the next uh, big virus which are uh, which will be targeted. So yes, people have been trying to use this technology to modify um, you know genomes. Yes. Mm. Prasad, uh, it's, it's interesting, interesting work, has uh, you know, fairly big ramifications, and if you get it right, it could really be valuable. Um, thanks so much for chatting to us today, and uh, good Thank luck. You. Yeah, thanks. No problem. Uh, Dr. Prasad Paradkar from CSIRO, and uh, also working with the University of California, San Diego. Interesting stuff there. I, I like he, he at least is looking very carefully about the impacts mm. of these mosquitoes, mm. which is um, important, you know, a very, very important wise. and very broad, broad <laughs> issue. Yeah, I'm not going to say cane toads, but oops, sorry. You've got to be careful with stuff. It's uh, it's tricky. Three, triple. And we're back. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3 Triple R, folks. In the studio with us now is Dr. Yoni Nimble Jacobson. Is, uh, she's from the lab manager and research fellow in the School of Earth, Atmosphere and Environment at Monash University. Welcome to Triple R. Hello. We were just talking about how to pronounce your name two seconds before we came back on the air. <laughs> Thanks to Chris KP. That's what I do. <laughs> That's what you do. Now, you're into isotope geochemistry. That's right. There's nothing I like more than isotopes, but we're going to have to have a bit of a chat first about what they are, because they, most of our audience, I think, is vaguely aware of what isotopes are, but give us a quick rundown. Um, yeah, so basically, so we know that um, everything around us is made out of atoms and mm. um, that every element has a different atom. Um, so some elements um, have more than one. Um, so basically every atom of every element looks the same but some elements um, have more than one kind of atom and they vary in weight so some atoms are heavier and lighter So mm. and that's what we call heavy and light isotopes. Mm. Um, and the good thing is that we can measure these isotopes in a rock or in a mineral, um, and the ratio of these isotopes can tell us a lot of different things about that rock, how it um, evolved or how old it is. So, yeah, a lot of things we can do with these little tiny isotopes. Mm. I suppose people are most commonly aware of carbon-12 dating yes. as an isotopic dating yes. system. Um, so uh, tell us, I mean, this is not so much geology, but tell us how that works, because I think it's a good example people can get their head around. Yeah, so uh, um, I might talk more about um, uranium lead. So, mm. yeah, 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 it's even better. Yeah, it's longer. Yeah, that, that's, yeah. that's longer, and that's more mm. what I work yep. with. Um, so basically, um, the uranium atom is not stable. And it decays to another atom, um, and of a long, um, so the uranium, um, decays to thorium and then a few other, um, elements, and then finally it lands at a lead atom. Um, and that's, we, we know how long it takes from the one isotope, so it's mm. decay to the other one, and then we can measure the uranium atom, so the amount of uranium atoms and um, the amount of lead, and then we can figure out how old the rock is. Hmm. So if we started off with a bucket of uranium and then, and we know exactly how many years it takes for half the bucket to turn into lead. That's correct. And then we can sort of say, well, if I've got 30% lead, then, yeah, then it's, it's X number X, of years yeah. and off you go. Exactly. Yeah. So, so what sort of, what sort of rocks are you dating in, in your work? Like, well, what sort of processes are you looking at with this? Um, so I'm looking at processes in the early Earth, so very, very old, like three billion years old. Mm -hmm. Um, and we're trying to figure out, um, so, uh, we're trying to figure out how certain processes in plate tectonics, um, started and evolved over time. And um, basically why the Earth's surface looks like it looks today. Mm. 
Mm. How much do you... Uh, well, my question really here is, how do you know when you go searching? And I, I suspect this is just, you know, geologists get this ability to just <laughs> find the right rock. But, you know, like, so Chris KP and I, you were out wandering around. They all look the same. Um, but how do you no, know... <laughs> right. So how do you know which is a three billion year old rock that, you know, you're going to carve up and have a look at versus something that's relatively, you know, a one billion year old rock. How do you tell? How do you know what to look for? Surely you just ask it, right? Yeah. Oh uh, yeah, that will be, that, then I'm out of the job. <laughs> if, that, if it's that easy. Um, so basically we have a rough, uh, we have an idea, um, how old certain regions, um, on the earth are. So mm-hmm. for instance, in, in Australia, we know the Pilbara is pretty old. And the Yugan Cretan is pretty old, and Gawler Cretan. These are all old Cretans we early Earth uh, researchers like to look at. Yeah. And, and then what's the process for actually taking those rocks and determining their actual age? I mean, how do you do that? Um, so first you go there and um, take home a few kilos of that rock. It has to be fresh, so it can't have any um, alterations on the outside. Mm. So you, you, you take a big slectoma and then you just yeah take away um, a few kilos of that rock. Um, and then you um, grind it up into little chips and then you put it in a mill and make a fine powder out of it and that you dissolve an acid. Mm-hmm. And then um, you go into a lab and... and um, and separate all the um, elements you want to measure and then you measure one element system at a time and then you measure the uranium for instance first and then a lead and then you can calculate your ratios and your age. Mm. And in terms of the, you know, when you look at these rocks, I mean, I, I've always had this idea that the, the earth was sort of a lot of turmoil back at that time. You know, there's a lot of movement. Yeah. So how much variation is there, like, within a site like the Pilbara and so forth, like, from just, you know, kilometre to kilometre? Or is that is that on a scale that's small relative to the sort of stuff you're looking at? Um, it's sort of... So, so some regions are, are big, we're looking at, and mm. some cretins are big, so we have um, really a big area we can source, and, yeah, some some outcrops are pretty small. So it yeah. really depends on what you're looking at. So what's the oldest rock you've looked at? Like, what's the oldest rock you've found? Um, I actually worked on the oldest zircons on Earth in oh, my really? PhD. Ooh. Yeah, they are 4.4 yeah. billion years old, so, yeah. And, and the Earth is 4.5. Five. Yeah. So what do they look like? And um, they're little brown dots. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen lots of little brown dots. <laughs> see, that's I got to be I got to I wouldn't pick that out. I'd see a little brown dot, and I'd probably think Chris had been there. Um, Maybe, as opposed yet, to. But yeah, yeah, I do find that I find that when you say you know four point four billion years old, I do find that genuinely very exciting. That's extremely cool. It's just that I haven't got the experience to appreciate it. How much information can you get from this in terms of the, the location of the rocks? I mean, do they also record like things like the Earth's magnetic field when they were formed and things of that nature? Can some, you get... some do, yeah, mm. but that's not the area I'm working on. But, right. yeah, that's something you can do as well. Yeah. So when, when, you, when you pull out these rocks, I mean, what does that then tell you? Like, what, does, what can you infer in terms of plate tectonics and so forth from that information? Um, so we are not sure... Um, when certain processes within um, plate tectonics started, for instance, mm. subduction, that's the process where we have the, the ring of fire, the Pacific yeah, ring of fire, yeah. that's subduction. And, um, and, that, and that's where one plate one, drags under another. Yeah, yeah. C- exactly. And um, so we, we're pretty sure that 
that wasn't the case in the early Earth because the Earth was very warm, so the plates probably couldn't they they melted pretty or they they yeah they couldn't really dive underneath mm-hmm. yeah because mm-hmm. the, the mantle was was very hot at that time, um, but we're not quite sure when and how that all started with a with a subduction um, and yeah so all yeah. these processes so that's. Yeah, we have a rough idea, but not. Yeah, yeah. There, there's still a lot of questions that aren't answered. At, at what point in the geological history you're talking about can you see the effects of biology on the rocks? Do you see that? Ah, uh, no, because okay. we're in, the, in deep in the earth. Too too far. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. I'm just wondering um, what what evidence do you look for? Like, literally, what would you find that would indicate subduction or not? Um, as Probably traces of water in minerals and rocks. Okay. Mm. Okay. Now, you know, going on past your work for a second, you're, you're hoping this year, I, I should, more than hoping, to go on the um, Homeward Bound program or project, which is, uh, we've had a lot of guests on over the last few years about this. This is a program for women in science mm-hmm. that uh, builds over a whole year and ends with a gigantic uh, trip, which sounds amazing, down to Antarctica, as, as I recall. Um, to, you're, you're looking to crowdfund your... Um, that's correct. Yeah. So I'm, I'm part of the fourth cohort this yep. year. Um, and the, so the whole program runs for a year, as you said. So it started in December. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, yeah, at the moment, crowdfunding for the journey to Antarctica in November this year. Okay. And... Tell us a bit about you know what you're going to get out of the program. Why are you why are you doing it? Um, so ba- we all know that women are underrepresented in um, in STEM, mm. but also especially in leadership roles in mm. STEM, especially um, in geology. I would assume too. Yeah, geology yeah. is pretty male dominated. Yeah, yeah um, uh, more than biology or other sciences. Right. Um, so what I want to I want to basically. Yeah, be more visible, be a role model. Um, it's it's a lot about um, being visible as a female scientist, mm. and I hope to get um, skills out of this program to be more visible and to be a better leader. And I'm already doing a bit of um, sort of out- outreach in schools. Um, as a school of my kids, I yep. um, go to and talk about science and so rare um, rocks. Uh, uh, rocks, meteorites, yeah, mm. all that kind of stuff, and they love it. The kids yeah. love it. Yeah. And as a geologist, what excites you about Antarctica and going there? Uh, um, look, the the geology of Antarctica, as we we probably know less about Antarctica than other places. So yeah, of course that's um, that's a cool place. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, it's one of those things where I suppose. Uh, the morphology and so forth down there would be is it so different from the rest of the continents you've worked on or are you expected to be relatively the same or um i i I expect it to be very different um yeah because i mean the the it's all covered in ice so (laughs) that's different to everywhere else And, and, and i suppose there's there's elements of that that are just you know, have been not exposed to the rest of the Earth's history yeah, yeah. for such a protracted period of time that yeah. things will be, yeah, untouched. Um, now, in terms of people supporting you for the for the trip, what what do they have to do? Um, so, I have a crowdfunding campaign on GoFundMe, mm-hmm. and if you look for Yona goes to Antarctica, then you 
should be able to find it. That sounds yeah. great. Yeah, I'm yeah. grateful for every dollar you can spare. Yep, well, we'll put it up on our Twitter feed and Facebook and so forth, and hopefully uh, you'll get the support you need. And uh, maybe after you've gone, you can come back and talk to us about uh, whether the rocks were the same or you got down there and it was just like Melbourne. It was like Croydon. <laughs> yeah, there's nothing. <laughs> I suspect that won't be the case. Thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us. Uh, it's great to have a geologist on. We don't we don't have a lot of geologists on the program, actually, because there aren't that many around. Uh, well, you know, there, there's a few, but not as many as some of the other fields that we, we get on quite often. So good luck with your work, and um, we'll chat to you when you get back. Yep, thank you. Okay, Dr. Yona Nebel-Jacobson is from Monash University. 102.7. Uh, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3 R. Dr. Ewan has been preparing something for us that's apparently just going to make us get up and want to dance on a Sunday <laughs> with happiness. <laughs> Have I oversold it? Maybe slightly. I mean, <laughs> dancing would be a good response in some ways because what I'm going to be talking about is probably not the most joyous news. Mm. Um, and in some ways it shouldn't come as a shock because I think that's another really important part about this work is we've predicted these things for decades now and we're now seeing them happen Mm -hmm. and we're still not really doing what we need to do to stop them happening. So I think most of us in this room, if not all of us, would realise it's been really hot. Like January was hot. In fact, it was the hottest record, sorry, the hottest month on record as far as we know in Australia ever. Mm -hmm. So since 1910, I think it is, since they've had proper recording of uh, temperature and so forth. Mm -hmm. So it's really hot. And, you know, Port Augusta got to 49.5 degrees. That's pretty toasty. That's crazy. That's where you you can, you you crack the eggs on the, on the pavement. Yeah. And once you start talking about 50 degrees, humans are not really good at thermoregulating, you know, so those temperatures. So it's, it's actually pretty dire. And, you know, even when we went up for holidays recently in December, it was 38 degrees at 11 o'clock at night. Now that's, again, getting pretty toasty. So anything above 30, anything above Body temperature, yeah, 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 that's right. Yeah. And, and when, that's at night time too, right? Yeah. Eleven o'clock at night. So, yeah. um, so I guess what I'm talking about is, you know, climate change, which we all know about already. But I think more importantly, extreme weather events. And as an ecologist and conservation biologist, that's just a really hard message to communicate because everyone talks about sort of the steady increase in temperature, mm. and that's really important. Mm-hmm. But in terms of having impact on species and the environment and so forth, it's these extreme weather events which are associated with climate change that are the real danger in many cases. And so we saw this happen recently in North Queensland where in last December 23,000 spectacled flying foxes died basically in a day or so after two really hot days in Cairns. And when I say really hot days in Cairns, 42 degrees. Now, mm. for those who know the tropics and the temperate zone well, you know, Melbourne gets hot, Adelaide gets hot, you know, 40 degrees. It's not uncommon. Mm. It's mm. really uncommon to get mm. 40 degrees in Cairns. That's right. yeah. super Crazy. hot for Cairns. <clears throat> and so these um, flying foxes can't thermoregulate when it gets really, really hot for a couple of days in a row. And those 23,000 bats that died, that's one-third of the total population in Australia. So there's about 70, wow. 75,000 of these. Exactly. So about a third of the population died... In one foul sweep. So, so to go to sort of find a detail there, I mean, what proportion of the population of those bats in Cairns died? So, but yeah. You're talking I, about Australia as a whole. Yeah. So most of these bats are only found in North Queensland, I right. should say that. Okay. So, you know, they're found sort of North Queensland going up to Cape York and so forth. But in, in this Cairns region, about 23,000 bats die. Now, it's already a threatened species and so forth. Mm. And so there's a real concern there. You know, similarly in 2014, 46,000 uh, black flying foxes died in southeast Queensland, again associated with extreme weather event. Um, another example of extreme weather event killing in the ecosystem uh, was the mangroves in 2017 in the Gulf region of Carpentaria, 7,000 hectares of mangroves mm. died as right. a result of uh, 
preceding this high temperatures drought, so they became water stressed and they had hot air and also um, low inundation. And so mm. these mangroves basically dried out and cooked. And again, you might think, well, you know, that's that's kind of tragic for the mangroves. Of course, it is, mm. but it's also really important for the fishing industry because yeah. those well, who know mangroves know they're a really important nursery area for fisheries. And that part alone is worth about thirty million dollars as a fishing industry. Yeah, mm. so those those are really big ecosystems, and I'm, I mean that without sounding judgmental, it's very easy for people to get excited in the mainstream media about the Great Barrier Reef, mm. as they should. Or the rainforest. Or the rainforest, mm. yeah. But when you go mangrove, it's just less sexy. Absolutely. Uh, temperate mm. reefs, less sexy. Yeah. Deserts, less sexy. Yeah, I've got a colleague who works on blue carbon yeah. at Deakin University, and he works on mangroves and, and uh, salt marshes and so forth, and he often d- describes them as the armpits of, of the marine world. <laughs> right? oh, no, yes. one, no one likes them, but they're and actually super important, the right? mangroves can be smelly, <laughs> like armpits. Um, yeah. So with, yeah. With something... With something like the mangroves or the bats i mean what sort of recovery time are you talking about there i mean how what i don't know is how many young in a given year a bat will have so that's a really good question and obviously it's going to come back to the life history of that particular organism so if it's a bat you know it's obviously going to take several years but in some cases what we're most concerned about is that they may never recover Mm, which brings me to the fires in tasmania and i think that's a really important point that you make chris is that you know the barrier reef that's a tragedy. No one questions that. And it's getting a huge amount of attention. But these fires in Tasmania that have just begun in the last couple of months, they, mm. they are absolutely um, catastrophic and tragic. So um, an area of about 187,000 hectares of Tasmania, so that's about 2.5% of Tassie has been affected by fires or is still being affected by fires at the moment. So that's a huge area. And now the thing, the thing that's different about Tasmania is that there's many of these plants down there have evolved in the absence of fire. So we all know about eucalypts and acacias yep. and so forth, banks, they have an ability to actually respond to fire and some of them actually need fire to germinate and to to, to grow and so forth. Some of these species in Tasmania, so pencil pines, hewn pines, deciduous beech, which are all kind of Gondwanan relics, if you like, they don't like fire at all. And so if you put a fire through there, they die and these systems may never actually recover and actually change to another type of system. So, you know, the technical term in ecology we often call is an ecosystem state change. So you go from having like a forest to, let's say, a more dry, open woodland or something. I remember reading a paper a few years back too about what was being determined or be, trying to be determined around the, the minimum viable size of some of these mm, forests and so yeah. forth. So, you know, once you, even though some of it might have been protected and saved, below a certain size, and it depended very much on the type of trees and, and ecosystem there, that simply over time, no matter what you did, it would be gone. So, um, yeah, there's so a minim- there's sort of a, a minimum that. So you the had size to is up. a really interesting thing. So obviously you need a, a number of individuals to keep a you know any any sort of species going. But also if it's fragmented, of course, it's yeah. maybe more exposed to fire. But also we now know that also that forests and, and plant communities they actually generate their own weather if they're at a mm. certain scale. So if they become smaller and more fragmented, that actually changes the local weather pattern, the microclimate. And mm. so the reason why these fires have been so tragic in Tasmania is that a couple of things have happened. There's been these dry lightning events which essentially it's when you have a lightning storm but no rain hits the ground mm-hmm. so it evaporates yep. before it hits the ground and they've had hundreds of those but at the same time because it's been really dry in Tasmania of late mm. this dry, this lightning's hitting the ground and starting all these fires and the people involved in this work have basically shown that as a result of climate change the low weather um, the lows basically which carry all this rain across from the west of Tasmania across and it dumps huge amounts of rain they're pushing further south so Tasmania's getting drier and drier mm. um, more than we thought actually if you go back to Sort of, you know, for years people predicting Tassie would actually do okay mm-hmm. climate change wise, yeah. but it's not that case at all. So it's becoming quite dry and therefore more prone to these fires. And so that's the reason why these, you know, particular lightning strikes have been so catastrophic. 
um, in Tasmania. Now, you know, you lose one species, you lose an ecosystem, you know, that's problematic. But the other thing that's, uh, I think, really shocking um, that has come out recently is some modelling work that talks about, I guess, extinction cascades and co-extinction. So when you lose one species, there's kind of a chain reaction of other extinctions that occur mm. and essentially can speed up the process and the numbers of extinctions, if you like. And so this has been greatly underestimated. So what they did was they modelled basically scenarios under climate change and said, okay, well, let's just look at single species going extinct. Now let's allow this model to incorporate the fact that one species may be dependent on another. Now, we talked about mm. the Barrier Reef before. We know that coral, as an example, have a really close mutualistic symbiotic relationship with zooxanthellae, which are basically these algae that sit within their tissues and actually provide um, nutrients to these mm. corals. But when they get too hot, they, they basically get expelled out of the coral and the coral, with time, can starve to death and die. Mm. So that's what's happened over large sections of the reef. So that's just one example of, you know, an association where if you lose one, you're going to lose both. What they did was they modelled these associations and they found that we've underestimated by, by as much as 10 times the number of extinctions that are going to occur under climate change. And so that basically just, they worked out that with a five to six degree increase in temperature, you're basically talking, talking about the loss of almost all life on Earth. Hmm. So obviously, if we get to five to six degrees anyway, it's going to be dying no matter what in terms of sea level rise and other yeah. things. But we're already at sort of one and a half degrees and most people think we're not going to keep under two. So yeah. these co-extinctions are a really, really big concern. And another, I guess, um, a fascinating example of this, this is in Puerto Rico where they've been uh, studying insect populations over quite a long time period. So they've been collecting insects from the rainforest canopy from 1976 to 2013. So you basically spray the canopy, all the bugs fall yep. to the ground, you weigh them, you see how many different types of um, bugs and insects and so forth that you've got. And they found a 60-fold decrease in insects, mm. invertebrates, uh, 60-fold <laughs> over that time period. That is absolutely what massive. What time period again? From 76 to 2013. So not right. very long. In no. number or diversity? In or both? biomass. Yeah, in biomass. And so... And what they've also shown, though, over that same time period is that uh, lizards and birds and frogs, which all eat insects of in course. very large numbers, have mm. also crashed. And so... The explanation for this, again, was that we thought, well, why, why have insects collapsed? You know, insects in some ways can be a bit more resilient to um, mm. change than, say, we humums can because mm. they've got faster life histories, they reproduce mm. in high mm. numbers and so forth. But insects in rainforest populations actually tend to have a really narrow thermal tolerance. Right. Yeah. So even small increases in temperature for them can mm. be quite dire. And over that time period, in this part of Puerto Rico, there was about a 2.4 increase in temperature. Yeah. So... Which is, so, for them is huge. So, Ewan, do we have a feel for when we look at the uh, range of species and we go from the top of the food chain to the bottom of the food chain and we start, if, if we were starting to knock species out, where do you have the biggest impact in terms of this other species becoming extinct factor? Like, is it the, like, my sort of instinct would say, well, if you knock out the stuff at the bottom, all the stuff above it dies off. But I'm wondering whether that's that's true or whether it's more complicated and maybe it's the stuff at the top that actually is really problematic. Yeah, look, that's a great question. And in ecology, we often talk about top-down or bottom-up. Mm -hmm. So top-down is predation, which kind of, you know, mm -hmm. shapes the whole food web, if yeah, you like. Yeah. And bottom-up is the things like plants and so forth that are producing all these nutrients and then other organisms consume and therefore allows you to have a really complex community. So I think it's both. <laughs> um, 
I, I would suspect, though, if you knock out plants and insects and so forth, you're going to see a much greater collapse a lot faster because they, they are providing the vast yep. majority of those resources because of things like photosynthesis, of course, and you're getting all that energy converted mm. and that then flows through the food chain. Not to say, though, that if you lose your top predators, you're not going to see big changes. In actual fact, they're now showing that killer whales, as an example, are moving further north into the Arctic mm. region um, because it's becoming more accessible to them and they're yep. wondering about the, the impact of that on that um, local marine community. So there's all these changes that happen at the same time. Because one of the reasons I ask this question, of course, is, and this is, you know, brings us back to the time of the dinosaurs, but, you know, the predators at the top are less likely to evolve within a time period Absolutely. that manageable, whereas the ones at the bottom, you think, well, okay, you know, insects can evolve pretty quickly. Um, so where do we put our effort, given that we can't put our effort in very much of this at all because it's just it's so complicated. Yeah, that's, uh, again, a great question about, yeah, where do you invest your effort? I mean, yeah, there's no question that, you know, things with slow life histories have basically got very little chance. Mm. You know, mm. they just can't keep up with the, the pace of change. So I think um, obviously stopping extreme climate change it would be a great mm. thing to do. And then we've got to talk about mitigation measures, whatever they might look like. So I talked about the flying foxes before. So there's been some really interesting modelling done um, uh, where they've shown that they can now predict these events. So yep. they know that when it gets to 40, 42 degrees, and particularly if you've got those two of those events um, two days in a row, that's really a dire warning signal that these right. fruit bat colonies are going to be in big trouble. So you could theoretically, if you knew that was going to happen, you could go in there with sprinklers, as an example, and just douse those things with water, right, to keep them cool in mm-hmm. those extreme weather events. So that you're sort of ha- going to have to do two things at once, right? We're going to have to lower our emissions. We all know that. Um, but we're also going to have to have these extreme, um, I guess, mitigation measures where we, we can identify what's threatening a species and hopefully do something to, you know, keep them going. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, where to invest your resources is such a great question but so complex to answer because, as you know, the, the natural world is just ridiculously complex to understand. Yeah. You know, you pull this lever, what happens over there and it happens over mm. there and so forth. Yeah. I think, too, like our... our, our the communication that's often put out about this is somewhat simplistic for yeah. us. Like, like for example, we know, I was talking about this the other day, we, we, we know that grapes grow in a certain range. Yeah. So to deal with that, we're going to grow grapes, you know, a bit further south. Yeah. And that seems pretty easy, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But when you're talking about, you know, in rainforest environments where a particular insect has a 0.5 degree mm-hmm. variation of survival in terms of temperature, mm-hmm. and similarly with, um, it's very similar in many, many coral reefs where the temperature range over which they... Yeah. Because yep. survivors very, very small. Yep. Uh, you know, that, that to me is very different because, and scenarios where these things are non-mobile. So, yeah. you know, and I think Tasmania is a great example of that. You can't go far in Tasmania before you fall off. Yeah. Like, it's not like you can just go a bit further south and everything will be fine. And yeah. So even the grapes isn't that simple because grapes yeah. take a long time to grow. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, well, that, you know, it's going to have to keep, sh- and, the weather is going to keep changing. And people focus on temperature, but soil is important, mm-hmm. right? So you mentioned exactly. geology before. Like, the geologists mm-hmm. have a, a fantastic contribution to make it because just because you can move an animal from one area to not another mm-hmm. doesn't mean you can because the habitat may not grow right. there because you've got the wrong soil type. So mm-hmm. assisted migration, we call it, well, by, mm-hmm. by moving yep. animals around to prevent, you know, the impacts of climate change. The, the extreme, the, the, the increase in extreme weather conditions means that even if you go somewhere, everything is tickety-boo and perfectly fine and the geology works and everyone's happy, mm. or you're going to get more high-impact events yep. and less time to recover from them. That's right. Mm. Yep, so very positive stuff. Sorry. <laughs> so, <laughs> is, is this when we start dancing? Do is we this start the time? Well, I think it's, I mean, what it's dance exciting. is most appropriate? I'm not sure. <laughs> chicken dance, obviously. Do we need to dance, dance on a grave or can we just... The hot like, chicken bar dance. Yeah. <laughs> I want oh. to see that. <laughs> I don't know what it is. It's the problem with radio. <laughs> Folks will be posting on our socials <laughs> the, later the a video of this KP. The hot yeah, chicken dance. Weird. Uh, well, so in, in terms of, um, but in, just finally, in terms of the, 
the sort of you, you mentioned the mitigation stuff. Yeah. I mean, at what point do we? You know, I've always wondered this: at what point do we switch from prevention to mitigation in terms of the lion's share of our effort? Mm, yeah, yeah. How you allocate the resources? Yeah. Another great financial question about you know how much do you allocate to each one? And who and who will be making those decisions around which species we you know because there's always the if it's in the children's book we better save those ones kind well, of attitude. But in many senses that's not the way we should go. That raises the highly controversial topic of triage about letting some things go and, and supporting right. others. But that's mm. a whole whole other show just there. Yeah. <laughs> well, we can do that. Tune in next time. Yeah, we can do that some stage during the year. Thank you, Dr. Yuan. Thank uh, you. It's always a you know an incredible pleasure just when you talk about this stuff. I, I no. get excited. It makes my Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to hear that. Uh, Dr. Jean, great to see you too. You too, Dr. Shane. I didn't even say Happy New Year to everyone. Cause I know. I feels what's very, feels a bit weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah I know, answer. but hey, yeah, I like saying Happy New Year to people. Yeah, well, there you go. You've done now. Good. I think. Yep. Chris KP. Happy New Sunday. A, it's always a pleasure. <laughs> Likewise. <laughs> I'm sure we'll, we'll He wasn't nearly devious enough. Though. No, he wasn't. He, he didn't, you couldn't tell. He saved him for his chicken dance video. Yeah. <laughs> I think he got out of his system before we went on air, which is good for all the people listening yeah, to the yeah. show. <laughs> Folks, thanks so much for listening to Einstein and Gago again. We'll chat to you in a week. Uh, until then, remember science is everywhere. This has been a podcast oh. from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.